You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Today's podcast is all about ice cream. Let's start with one of the most famous songs ever written about the subject. Need something to keep you cool Now summertime is here Need something to keep you cool Hey little girl I've got some for you I'm your ice cream man Stop me when I'm passing by Cream sandwiches, Dixie cup, popsicles, and push-ups too. I'm your ice cream man. Stop me when I'm passing by. Now cool your little girl. Can't be satisfied. That's the original version of Ice Cream Man which was recorded by Chicago bluesman John Brim on May 4th of 1953. The record was shelved at the time, but was finally released to the public in 1969. Now, you're probably most familiar with the version that Van Halen recorded for their first album. It was loaded with double entendres, and this song perfectly fit David Lee Roth's image at the time. It also sent a steady stream of royalties to John Brim, and he used the money to open a blues club. Sadly, he's no longer with us. So living here in the Northeast United States, many of us associate ice cream with summer. I remember very clearly being a young kid in Brooklyn, New York, and hearing the sounds of the good humor ice cream truck as it was coming around the corner. Now what was music to my ears must have been panic to my parents, as they probably knew all too well that as soon as we heard that truck, we would start begging and pleading with them to buy us an ice cream. 
Of course, that all ended when we moved up to the Catskill Mountains when I was eight years old. There were no ice cream trucks to be found anywhere. While ice cream may bring back memories of more innocent times, the ice cream industry itself has been wrought with battles between different vendors. Maybe you've read recently about the turf war that's going on in New York City between two of these rivals. That's the national chain Mr. Softy and the more local New York ice cream. The war between these two companies started back in 2013. That's when Demetrios Circos, who owned about a dozen Mr. Softy franchises, received complaints from some of his drivers regarding the high cost of operating their trucks. They claimed that Mr. Softy simply charged too much in franchise fees, and they also jacked up the cost of the necessary supplies through the roof, and that meant little profit for the drivers. But Mr. Circos had the perfect solution. He simply added some sprinkles and a waffle cone to Mr. Softy's trademark logo, and he changed the name from Mr. Softy to Master Softy. <laughs> that was just a bit too close for Mr. Softy's comfort, so they ended up in court. Circos was forced to change the logos on his trucks, and he also had to change the company's name. He renamed it New York Ice Cream. Mr. Softy may have won in court, but they were losing on the streets of Midtown Manhattan, where New York Ice Cream now controls the territory. In a May 31, 2016 New York Times article, one of the drivers of a New York ice cream truck was quoted as saying, from 34th to 60th Street, river to river, that's ours. He continued, you will never see a Mr. Softy truck in Midtown. If you do, there will be problems and you won't see them there very long. Adam Vega, a driver for Mr. Softy in New York City, said in the same article, quote, let me tell you about this business. Every truck has a bat inside. A few weeks ago, my wife and I were driving around Cooperstown, New York, and we were listening to an episode of the excellent NPR show. In fact, it's one of my favorites, Radio Lab. This particular episode was about ice cream. It was called The Cold War. That was a good story, but when it was over, I started to tell my wife what I thought was an even better story about ice cream. It's nearly all about violence against the Mr. Softy company, but in reality, this type of intimidation and terror has been plaguing the industry for many decades now. I think a good place to begin is with how ice cream ended up on trucks in the first place. It all started back in 1920. That's when a Youngstown, Ohio candy maker named Harry Burt created an ice cream bar sealed in chocolate. It was really messy to eat, so his son Harry Jr. came up with a better idea. Why not insert a lollipop stick into the end of the ice cream and use it as a handle? He named his company Good Humor, but he needed a way to get this new treat into the hands of the kids. So he invested in a dozen refrigerated trucks, which were almost certainly cooled by ice at the time, and he was soon selling ice cream all over the city. Of course, there's one big problem with ice, and that is it melts. As long as the ice lasted, so would the cargo. So what was really needed was real, modern refrigerated trucks. And that innovation can be traced directly back to Minnesota in 1938. There, a man named Joe Numero was out playing golf with one of his friends who just happened to work in the shipping industry. 
The guy had just received word that his company had lost an entire truckload of live chickens. The trip took longer than had been expected, and the excessive heat killed the birds. Numero then mentioned this costly loss to his business partner, Fred Jones, who set his mind to solve the problem. Within weeks, Jones had created the first refrigerated semi-truck, and their company eventually became Thermoking, which is still one of the largest commercial refrigeration companies in the world. Now, ice cream trucks could safely and easily carry their precious cargo without any fear of it melting. Next comes soft-serve ice cream, and both Carvel and Dairy Queen claimed to have been the first to invent this. They both had it on the market in the late 1930s, but it turns out in 1919, three brothers, that's Archie, Claire, and Lester Core, took a modified ice cream machine to Coney Island. Within two days, the brothers sold 18,460 cones at a nickel each. The biggest problem they had with their newly invented soft-serve ice cream was that it melted too quickly, so they tweaked the recipe over time by adding eggs to both stiffen and increase the melting time. For that reason, since they added eggs, they're credited with inventing the first frozen custard, but not the soft-serve ice cream. The next big innovation came on St. Patrick's Day of 1956. Two brothers, that's William and James Conway, both worked for the Sweden Freezer Company in Philadelphia and decided to load one of the company's ice cream machines onto a truck and drive it around the city giving away you probably guess it for St. Patrick's Day, they gave away green soft-serve ice cream. That led the Conway brothers to start their own business, which they first called the Dairy Van, but they ultimately changed the name to Mr. Softy. The Mr. Softy name may have simply become a footnote to ice cream history, but the Conways made the insightful decision to franchise their concept. Within months of their startup, ads were appearing in newspapers across the country promoting the idea. For example, here is one from the January 29, 1957 issue of the Indianapolis Star. Do you want to get in on the ground floor of the first revolutionary idea since the inception of the soft ice cream industry? We have a complete soft ice cream stand on wheels, which has been tried and proven in Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, and Ohio. Now we are expanding into Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan. For as little as $4,000 cash investment, you can own a Mr. Softy mobile unit and can earn $8,000 to $11,000 during the seven months operation annually. The company expanded quickly and everything seemed to be going great. That is, it was going great until the news broke on August 1st of 1961 that five masked gunmen entered the Mrs. Softy facility at 2235 Harrison Street in Chicago through a doorway that had been left open for ventilation. They forced eight female and five male employees to lie down on the floor. After warning the hostages not to look up, 28-year-old Rafael Gomez did just that and he was slugged in the head with the butt of one of their guns. While two men guarded the employees, plant manager John Palmer was taken to the first floor office of the plant, and he was forced to hand over all of Sunday's receipts totaling $6,600. 
Next, they led Palmer to the second floor and forced him to unlock the safe, which contained an additional $5,400 that had been taken in on Saturday. Add to that the $200 they stole from individual employees, and the bandits made off with $12,200. That's about $98,000 when adjusted for inflation. This had all the markings of an inside job. Think about it. The thieves somehow knew that there was a safe upstairs and there'd be a lot of cash on hand at the end of the weekend, of course, since banks are closed. In addition, since many children paid for their ice cream with coins, the thieves came prepared with boxes to carry the coins out with. That's when it was revealed in the press that police had been investigating threats and violence against Mr. Softy. It had all started when they began operations in Chicago the previous May 12th. There had been several beatings and robberies of their truck drivers, a few of the trucks had been damaged by bullets, and there were trucks that had their windows smashed out at other times. Then, a week prior to the robbery, Richard Goudreau, who was the president of Mr. Softy of Illinois, received a phone call threatening his life. And then, for the next few years, things seemed to quiet down for Mr. Softy, at least in the press. There was a story about Mrs. Sally Nichols, who was driving one of their trucks to help pay the college tuition for her son, Ronald. Then there was the humorous story of a Mr. Softy truck being rear-ended by a competing Tasty Freeze truck on Winthrop Avenue in Chicago. In 1963, there was the report of the arrest of two Hartford youths for selling liquor from a Mr. Softy truck. The driver, 18-year-old Gary Pignoni, picked up 17-year-old David Chase in the Mayberry Village area. Chase loaded the cooler with six half pints of whiskey and then he drove around asking teenagers whether or not they'd like to purchase some booze. They managed to sell two half pints before being stopped by the cops. But, as I said, things seemed to quiet down for Mrs. Softy in the press. Behind the scenes is an entirely different story. Please keep in mind that I'm referring to Mr. Softy of Illinois, you know, a franchise, and not the entire corporation itself. At the time, they operated approximately 60 trucks in Chicago and an additional 70 in the surrounding area. On July 13, 1965, the Chicago Tribune published a front-page story titled Ice Cream Maker Tells Four-Year Terror Reign. In the story, Richard Goudreau, the same guy who received the threatening phone call back in 1961, described in detail what had happened in the four years since that incident. In 1962, shots were fired into one of the company's trucks, shattering the windows and flattening the tires. This was followed by sugar being discovered in the gas tanks and generators of two trucks. Drivers had been beaten on their routes, and Goudreau himself had received additional threatening phone calls since that initial one was reported. One call told him to get out of town or else, while another warned, we'll get you. As you'd expect, Mr. Softy stayed, and it looks like the callers did follow through on their promise to get them. On November 26, 1962, a fire was set at the company's plant at 3301 North Halstead Street, destroying 56 of their trucks. The fire was so intense that the roof and portions of the walls of the building collapsed. 
1963, three men entered the company headquarters and demanded that Goudreau endorse a check that had been issued for an insurance claim over to them. As the men were leaving the building, one of their employees attempted to record the license plate of the getaway car. The men saw what the employee was trying to do and they severely beat him before burning his face with a lighted cigar. And it was only going to get worse. The day before the story was published, two men crawled under a partially open garage door at the facility and they tossed in two black powder bombs. They landed right under a large propane tank. Luckily, the tank didn't explode, but the bombs caused an estimated $5,000 in damage to five of their trucks, which would be about $39,000 today. Goudreau estimated that all this violence had cost his company $100,000. That's over three quarters of a million dollars today. And that's just since they started in 1961. Four years, that's it. He blamed the bombing on, quote, crime syndicate hoodlums. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Police were unsure if this was a terror act aimed specifically at Mr. Softy, or if it had been the fourth of a larger series of bombings that had been going off around the city at the time. Chicago Police Superintendent Orlando W. Wilson was quoted in the Chicago Tribune on July 14th as saying, That was an act of harassment to a company that has been subjected to this kind of thing for several years. The Illinois Crime Investigating Commission served up subpoenas to a number of people connected or possibly connected to the bombings. This included a thug who was Teamster Union boss Jimmy Hoffa's right-hand man and another who was a crime syndicate boss. They both denied having any connection to the bombings. The crimes remain unsolved, but the bombings did stop. Now let's change our focus from Chicago to New York City. On July 2nd, 1969, five gunmen held up employees at two Mr. Softy and one Freezer Fresh garage, and they vandalized a total of 76 ice cream trucks. The trucks were left basically intact, but the thieves made off with the stainless steel spiral blenders that each of the trucks used to make ice cream. No cash or any other valuables were taken. Now, John Salvato, who is the president of Mr. Softy of the Bronx, was quoted in the July 4th, 1969 issue of the New York Times, the metal parts that they took from each truck cost about $520 each to replace, but they're useless to anyone who's not making ice cream. Then, on Monday, July 7th, 
the manager of the Bronx garage received a threatening phone call, and it warned that if his trucks weren't taken off the streets, they would be blown up. Two days later, a 22-year-old Mr. Softy driver named Anthony Faia was kidnapped at gunpoint and forced to drive to Autumn and Cozine Avenues in Brooklyn, which today is the site of the USPS distribution facility, so don't bother driving over there. He was then forced to get out of his truck and start running as fast as he could. He was less than one block away when he heard his truck explode. The next day, most of the Mr. Softy drivers in New York City refused to take their trucks out. It was reported that just 20 of their 109 drivers went out on their routes that day. Detectives that were working on a special task force to deal with organized crime offered up the lead needed to solve this current reign of terror. You see, three months earlier, they had questioned two men about the robbery of a shipment of German pistols, and both suspects had ties to the ice cream industry. On July 24th, Brooklynite Lennis Seneskalki, who was a carpenter who had previously worked in the ice cream business, was arrested for stealing the blender mixers from the Mr. Softy trucks. This was followed by the arrest of Salvatore Fariello of Long Island. Robert England of Brooklyn was also indicted, but couldn't initially be located. Then, in mid-October, England was arrested as a suspect in the theft of $1.3 million from the Aqueduct racetrack, and that's when the police realized that he was also wanted in the Mr. Softy wave of terror. A key piece of evidence in the case was the wavy brown toupee that Mr. Fariello wore. At the hearing to determine Bond, the prosecutor, who was Burton B. Roberts, requested that Mr. Fariello be forced to remove his toupee and leave it as evidence, and that's because he had worn it during the police lineup in front of the Mr. Softy employees. Fariello's lawyer couldn't be present at the time, so bail was set at $25,000, and he was allowed to keep his toupee. But Judge Ross warned Fariello, quote, I am giving you a direct mandate. On Monday, have that toupee back here in the same condition I'm looking at now, or we'll hold you in contempt. Fariello was already out on $1,000 bond for possession of stolen goods, which I can only assume were some of the missing German guns. It turns out that Fariello was the president of F&F Enterprises, which operated a fleet of 60 ice cream trucks under the name Freezer Fresh. Now, many of the trucks were individually owned by their drivers, and in 1965, one of FNF's drivers decided to join his brothers and set up a new company. His name was John Salvato, the same president of Mr. Softy of the Bronx that I had mentioned earlier. After that, drivers started to defect from Freezer Fresh over to Mr. Softy. In 1969, that's the year of these crimes, 10 of their drivers switched brands. And if you recall, I had mentioned that on the night that the Mr. Softy trucks were robbed, so were the Freezer Fresh trucks. Well, it turns out that part was untrue. Fariello reported the theft of his own truck simply to cover his tracks. Amazingly, the charges were eventually dropped, although Fariello was soon out of business. It seemed like deja vu at 1.49 p.m. on Friday, June 30th of 1978. That's when a Mr. Softy truck blew up at Nassau and Fulton Streets in Lower Manhattan. 162 people were injured by the flying glass and debris, 
and early reports were that a bomb had gone off under the truck, which of course, based on previous turf wars within the industry, was a logical assumption. But it was ultimately proven wrong. According to the driver of the truck, Lee Balter, there was a fire in the truck that caused a two and a half gallon or nine and a half liter spare gasoline can to explode, which then further ignited the truck's gasoline tanks. As I've mentioned before, I live near Albany, New York, and around here I've never seen a Mr. Softy truck. Instead, we have a brand known as Mr. Dingling, which personally I think is a really bad name if you think of that old Chuck Berry song. Anyway, back in May of 2013, Mr. Dingling made national news when one of its trucks was driving through nearby Gloversville. You see, in the past, Mr. Dingling had an agreement with the owner of another local company, that's Snow Cone Joe, not to be on the streets of Gloversville. But when Snow Cone Joe was sold, that agreement went out the window. Within just a few days of the Mr. Dingling truck showing back up on the streets of Gloversville, the threat started. Supposedly, 34-year-old Joshua Malatino, who was the driver of the competing Snow Cone Joe truck, started tailgating the Mr. Dingling truck, and he tried to force him out of town. At one point, he yelled, You don't have a chance! This is my town! at the Mr. Dingling driver. Every time that the Mr. Dingling truck would stop, Malatino would do the same and yell, Free ice cream! towards anyone who tried to go near the competing vehicle. Malatino had already been warned by police that this type of behavior wouldn't be tolerated, yet he continued to do so, and that included phone threats to the Mr. Dingling Company headquarters. Malatino and his girlfriend Amanda Scott were arrested, charged with harassment, and ultimately, the city of Gloversville refused to renew Snowcone Jones' vendor permit. After a year in court, Malatino was acquitted on all charges. Snowcone Joe finally returned to Gloversville on April 30th of this year. I could go on and on about turf wars between ice cream vendors. In the 1980s, a number of ice cream trucks in Glasgow, England, were used as a cover for distributing drugs and stolen goods, which culminated with the death of six members of one family. In 2002, one Melbourne, Australia ice cream vendor hacked one of his competitors to death. Singling out Mr. Softy or making people think that this kind of violence occurs everywhere probably just isn't fair, as I'm sure that most of the estimated 20,000 or so ice cream truck drivers that travel the streets of the United States each day are wonderful law-abiding people that are just trying to make an honest living. As with most professions, it is the awful few that ruin it for everyone else. A couple of years ago, my wife and I attended a friend's wedding. Instead of the usual oversized, over-the-top cake, you know, with the plastic bride and groom on top, they opted to rent an ice cream truck for dessert. And it was a great choice in the way ice cream should always be. Everyone, including the driver, was having a great time. And best of all, who doesn't love ice cream? Now, if we could just do something about those annoying, repetitive jingles that blare from those trucks. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. largest selling ice cream in America is Seal Test ice cream. It's smoother. Creamier tasting. Better in every way. Better because Seal Test takes greater care in making ice cream. 
For example, all ingredients must be fresh and of top quality. Flavorings must be true and pure. And the ice cream is blended only by experts with great skill. This greater care adds up to extra quality ice cream. Exclusive seal test quality. You'll know what I mean when you dip into a heaping plate full of chocolate marshmallow royale. The seal test flavor of the month. Try some, won't you? And whenever you crave ice cream... That commercial for Seal Test Ice Cream is from the September 9th, 1948 episode of Seal Test Variety Theater, and it was hosted by Dorothy L'Amour. The Seal Test name was originally a franchise concept. Milk producers would purchase the rights to sell under the Seal Test name in their local markets. In exchange, the name assured customers of a quality product. Seal Test was a division of the National Dairy Products Corporation. Back in 1923, a man named Thomas McInerney had operated the Hydrox Dairy Corporation in Chicago, and he had a brilliant idea. He went to Wall Street and convinced investment bankers that the ice cream industry was too fragmented and needed to be consolidated. Between 1923 and 1931, National Dairy Products bought up 55 different firms in the dairy business, and that included Breyer's Ice Cream and Kraft Phoenix. In 1969, the entire corporation changed their name to the Kraft Co. Corporation. Kraft eventually sold the Seal Test and Breyer's names to Unilever. Today, they sell their frozen treats under the Breyer's, Klondike, Good Humor, Ben & Jerry's, Dove, Popsicle, and other popular names. But the one that is missing is Seal Test, which is no longer being made in the United States. And now for the question of the day. The first known serving of ice cream in the United States occurred in 1744. That's when Maryland Governor Thomas Bladen had it placed on the dessert table at one of his dinners. There is documentation of many flavors of ice cream being created in that time period, and that included the usual suspects like chocolate, strawberry, and vanilla. So here's my question for you. Which of the following flavors did not exist back then? There's no evidence of this particular flavor existing back then. So which one didn't exist? Was it one, coffee, two, oyster, three, parmesan cheese, four, pear with blue cheese, or five, pistachio? Well, the answer is number four. Pear with blue cheese. That is a more modern flavor that is served at the Salt and Straw in Portland, Oregon. As disgusting as it sounds, there are records of oyster-flavored ice cream. Personally, I'd eat it as long as it was covered in chocolate. Let's face it, anything covered in chocolate tastes great. In other news, here are a few more stories that have something to do with ice cream, at least in a small way. In our first story from February of 1920, it was reported that the Board of Health in New York was about to ban, and you're going to love this, they're about to ban the use of glue in the manufacture of ice cream. Hard to believe. It seems that some of the ice cream manufacturers have been substituting the glue for gelatin because it could be obtained for a lower price. Specifically, the new rule said, quote, ice cream shall be deemed adulterated if it contains less than 8% of milk fat, more than 7 tenths of 1% gelatin or other harmless vegetable gum, if it contains any rancid, renovated, or processed butter, 
or if it contains in whole or in part any filthy or decomposed substances which may render the ice cream injurious to health, if it contains any added poisonous ingredients or ingredient which may render it injurious to health. Incredible. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. In our next story, it was reported that three men robbed Heights Pharmacy on February 22nd of 1923. The store was located at St. Nicholas Avenue and 145th Street in New York City. Two of the men kept clerk David Newberger busy, while the third snagged druggist Abraham N. Horowitz as he emerged from the basement of the store after getting some drugs to fill prescriptions. They tied Dr. Horowitz up and stole $300 from his pocket, plus his gold pocket watch and chain. They also searched the pockets of the clerk and found a total of 45 cents. So they were very nice and they gave the money back to him and told him to use it for car fare. During all this commotion, the thieves failed to lock the door to the store. So in enters one Dr. Siegel and his wife. And he was also tied up and an additional $38 was taken. Another customer entered the store, adding another $170 to their haul. And here is where things start to get interesting. A woman walked in and requested a jar of Vaseline, so one of the thieves said it was out of stock and she should come back tomorrow. But he did offer her another product as a substitution, but she was uninterested and left the store. Next, a young man entered the pharmacy and requested a pint of ice cream. Now that may seem odd today, but keep in mind many pharmacies served ice cream back then. So the crook turned clerk grabbed an empty container, scooped the ice cream, and then had the nerve to charge the man 35 cents for it. Finally, another woman walked in and asked the pseudo clerk if her prescription was ready. So he checked with the doc who was still in the back with guns pointed at his head, and he responded that the prescription was indeed ready. The woman received her prescription, paid the dollar twenty for it, and then left the store, never ever suspecting that it was being robbed. During that final sale of the prescription, the thief opted to clean the cash out of the register. He then asked the pharmacist if he had any coke, and when Dr. Harwitz replied that he did not, the three men left the store. Mrs. Siegel saw the three men speed off in a taxi that had been parked about a half a block away. Finally, when Mrs. Clementine Farr Duff died on February 6, 1937, her estate was valued in excess of $1 million. That'd be nearly $17 million today. She left a sizable chunk of the money to 13 individuals, which included her chauffeur, maid, butler, laundress, and others. 
but there was still plenty of money left to distribute, and a good portion of it went to churches, organizations for the blind, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, hospitals, and other nonprofits. But two of her requests would be considered unusual, even by today's standards. First, she left $100,000 to the Washington Home for the Incurables with the stipulation that every member of the governing board had to be Protestant to get the money. As you can probably guess, that money was never awarded. Second, a $20,000, that's $334,000 today, $20,000 trust was set up to supply patients and employees of the same institution, whether Protestant or not, with, quote, generous quantities of ice cream. That's a lot of ice cream. Well, that brings this episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. You can find additional true stories just like the one you heard on my website, which is uselessinformation.org, and in the two books written by me, Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. I do want to let everyone know that I'll be giving a presentation at Columbia Green Community College on August 25th at 10.30 a.m. I'll be presenting some of my favorite stories, some new ones that I've never told before, and I'll also tell a little bit about how I got into all of this. If you happen to be in the Hudson, New York area at the time, you're welcome to come in. Just drop me a message either by email, Facebook, or whoever. That's simply so I can let the organizers know who is coming. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.